In this episode of the Business of E-Commerce, I talk with Trent Dersmid about launching and scaling an Amazon wholesale business. This is the Business of E-Commerce, episode 36. Welcome to the Business of E-Commerce, the show that helps e-commerce retailers start, launch, and grow the e-commerce business. I'm your host, Charles Pulaski. I'm here today with Trent Dersmid. Trent is the host of the Bright Ideas podcast. He launched an Amazon wholesale business and he grew that business from zero to 100K a month in just under five months. He then delegated himself completely out of the business in just under a year. I found this totally awesome and wanted to talk today a bit about how he did this and how he grew and launched his Amazon business. So, hey, how are you doing today? Very well, Charles. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, it's great to have you. Definitely. How did I do with the last name? I know I was practicing. Uh, you were close enough. All right. <laughs> I try. So, yeah. So, want to kind of talk to you a bit about the Amazon business. I uh, I love the story on how you kind of grew it and how long have you been running it for? So, we officially started the wholesale model in August of 2016. I uh, I had started in private label in April, but I I grew that to about twenty five to thirty thousand a month, but I really wasn't making any money, and so I was basically floundering in in private label until I interviewed a guy on my show and learned that the wholesale model even existed because I didn't even know it was a thing. Yeah, it's funny that you say that. I the very the show right before this, I was talking to. Um, another guy on Amazon that went from wholesale to private label and had the exact exact opposite experience. So just, uh, it's interesting back to back like that. Um, two people, exact opposite experience with that. So what was not working for you in private label or what kind of, what happened there? So the thing with private label is, uh, your product, you're, you're making a bet that you're going to be smart enough to choose a product that has enough demand, but not too much competition. And then you invest, you know, you get you you get your samples and you get your name, you get your be your big order and it gets shipped here and so forth. And so there's a lot of money that gets sunk in up front. And if you get it wrong, if you pick like in my case, uh, I, one of the products that I invested the most money in was a shock collar for dogs because I wanted to get into it. I wasn't afraid of spending money on advertising, but I totally un- underestimated uh, the amount of black hat that goes on. Uh, with false reviews and so forth, because back then you could still game the system. And so I was just spending and spending and spending on promotions and pay-per-click to try and get my sales rank and my product to get to the point where, you know, it would sell well enough. And it wasn't the only product I had. I had some essential oil diffuser necklaces as well. But both of the product selections that I made weren't really that good. Um, And so, you know, four or five months in, I'm still not making any profit and I was really, really frustrated and uh, just didn't really want to do it anymore. So you had the calls all shipped here, all shipped to FBA and they just weren't moving. Well, they were moving and eventually we did sell them all on eBay. Um, so I did eventually get all my money back, but it took, you know, quite a while. Yeah. And you have to, and, uh, and there was private labels, big money up front. So you have to take that money and, you know, now it's it's that you know it's on your account anymore it's sitting at amazon essentially so then you have to basically get that money you know get those products back to cash um and that takes time and with wholesale the risks are way 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 lower it's impossible to lose all your money on wholesale unless you're just an absolute moron (laughs) because the products that we source in wholesale they're already selling yep they already have a track record they already have reviews and all we're trying to do 
is enter into a relationship with a supplier to give us some level of certainty or ideally exclusivity for that product. And when that happens, you just have a gravy train of cash with very little risk. And that's what I really like about wholesale. Okay. So when you say wholesale, just to define that, let's put, let's put a definition on exactly, you know, what's, who's the supplier and what are you doing with that product? How does that work? So wholesale is simple. We are contacting U.S. manufacturers. We are buying products from those U.S. manufacturers with our money. They become, when we purchase them at wholesale, and then we ship them into Amazon and they are sold at retail and we make money on the spread. Okay. And when we say you're buying, is it you're buying in bulk, buying one-offs, or how many at a time approximately? It depends on the sales volume of the product. We have, you know, like I'm looking out in the warehouse now and I have pallets and pallets of this one particular brand because it's a really strong seller and we go through the product like crazy. Uh, other products are orders, like an initial order. When we place the first order, we call that the test order. It's usually two to $3,000 worth. And then once the test order proves that all the data that we got from Jungle Scout or Viral Launch, the tools that we use to analyze things is, is actually accurate, um, then we'll order, you know, two months worth at a time. And that could be 10 or 20 grand. Okay. So you it just depends on the sales volume of the product. So when you first find, so you find a supplier, find a product that you, you know, do some research and say, okay, this is selling decently well on Amazon. Let's place a small test order and just see. So you spend a couple thousand, have it shipped to FBA and check the sell through. Yep. Okay. Yep. And, now, and of course we're having a conversation with the brand even before that test order and they're signing a contract with us. In the beginning, we didn't ask any brands to sign contracts because we were new and we didn't have the track record, but now we've got lots of brands, lots of track record. And unless they're willing to sign a contract with us for some level of exclusivity, we won't purchase from them. Oh, really? So what kind of, when you say exclusivity on Amazon or on online, what kind of what level Amazon. are you on Amazon? We, we want them to say we're going to be the only seller or one of two sellers or one of three sellers, but they can't just keep accepting new sellers after they start selling to us. Okay. So you're trying to find people before the you know, not the suppliers or the market saturated where you go on there on uh, other buying options and there's 57 other people all selling the exact same product for, you know, a slight loss. You're trying to actually get in on this early. You're trying to find diamonds in the rough and it's, it's not easy to do, but it's not impossible to do. It's like anything else in business. You know, I, I spent years in sales making cold calls before I was in this business and like anyone in sales would know, you've got to make lots of cold calls to find a prospect to ultimately find a customer. Uh, this is, we don't make cold calls per se, it's all done over email, um, but it's pretty much the same process. You have to turn over a lot of stones, knock on a lot of doors, whatever metaphor you'd like to use to find the supplier that has the right combination of product sales velocity, not too many other sellers, having enough Amazon problems that they, that they're in pain and you come along as the doctor and say, well, Hey, I know you're having this problem, this problem, and this problem. We can fix all those problems for you. We can clean everything up and we can probably increase your sales velocity by taking advantage of the marketing things that we know how to do on Amazon. Is that something you're interested in? And when you find the supplier with the right combination of pain and velocity and all those things, they, they're still nodding their head up and down. And that's when we end up forming a relationship. So you find supplies that are already selling on Amazon, but having issues with 
sell through or some some sort of issues um everybody everybody's on amazon's having yep. issues okay so some somebody who's are on amazon probably selling their own products but having some sort of issues and say hey we can basically run this for you we'll take the um take the risk on of actually purchasing the product ahead of time because we know this will work as long as you give us um the guarantee you know you'll basically step aside and let us do this and we'll be your amazon arm basically they don't have to step aside. A lot of times we'll be, we'll share the buy box with them. If it's the manufacturer that's actually selling through their own seller central account, we don't ask them to step aside and not at the beginning. Um, but we have been successful in getting them to step aside later on as the relationship develops our largest account. Uh, actually that's exactly what happened. So what do they get out of doing the exclusive? What's, what are you kind of giving to like, if they say, you know, Hey, you'll be, you'll be our retailer and on Amazon. That's it. What is, what do yeah. They get from that? So if a manufacturer is the sole seller of a product or maybe they have other sellers, but they don't even know who they are. So let's go with they're the sole seller. If they're the sole seller, there's a lot of risk because what if their account gets suspended Then their sales velocity goes to zero, their sales ranks get crushed and they might not be able to recover from that quickly, or it could be quite expensive for them to recover from that. Plus, they still have to manage their Amazon presence. And if that's not their core expertise, they're not going to do a very good job of it. Um, in the case where they have a whole lot of other unknown sellers, in all likelihood, those sellers, because they're unknown, are violating MAP. That's causing a race to the bottom on price. That manufactures brick-and-mortar retailers. Like, let's say, as an example, they're selling to Walmart, and Walmart is 50% of their sales and map for their widget is 19.99 and thanks to some unknown jackasses on Amazon selling it at 17.99 Walmart is threatening to kill the account. Yep. How motivated do you think the CEO of that company is to solve that problem? Got it. Pretty motivated. Yeah. Okay, so you're able to take a lot of the, the risk off that place and basically say we're going to, you know, you're not going to be the only one on Amazon. I'm going to do this with you, but I'm going to be, you know, do this well and not go on there and just try to you know, throw garbage on Amazon as fast as possible. We're actually trying to sell this product. And we don't pitch ourselves as just an Amazon seller. We're a multi-channel e-commerce distribution company. Okay. Um, so it's important that they understand that we're going to take them onto markets they might not be on currently. Okay. So maybe even um, foreign Walmart. markets as well? Uh, Walmart? Yeah, no, not, not so much foreign, not yet. Okay. Uh, Walmart, Jet, eBay um, are typically the other places that we'll go. I mean, there's a, there's a million markets you can be on. There's 20 or 30 of them, but most of them, I mean, Amazon is the dominant, obviously, by a mile. Yep. Walmart, Jet, and eBay are probably 8% of our total revenue. And then you can keep on adding more markets, but you're not going to hardly add any more sales. So I don't think it's worth it. Yeah, I think I read as of this weekend, Amazon was around 50% of all online sales. It was uh, Prime Day a few days ago. Um, and, you know, somehow <coughs> they're, uh, they're pretty dominant. Yeah, it's, it's impressive. So and as you go... You know, there's the, like you said, Walmart, eBay, Jets, that sort of thing. But as you go <laughs> to the other ones that we're not, we're both probably forgetting to mention right now, um, they really are like, it goes down fast. So there's like a yeah. steep curve. I mean, there's Sears, there's Rakuten, there's Overstock, and there's on and on and on. Yep. You could be on all of those, but we, we tested a few of them and it just wasn't worth the effort. Okay. And you're also selling through F FBA, right? So you're actually shipping to Amazon. And they do the fulfillment. So that kind of takes yeah. a lot of the weight off your shoulders. Correct. For the other markets for Walmart, Jet, and eBay, we have to fulfill ourselves, but we've outsourced that to a 3PL. Okay. So we were talking actually before the show, and you're physically in a, sitting in a warehouse right now, your warehouse. Yep. 
And what is that like? So you recently purchased a building and you're shipping product there. And what do you do from that facility? Prep. Okay. So prep, the products arrive in pallets. They don't have any Amazon stickers on them. They may not be bundled yet. Um, and then it, if you get, say, three pallets in the door, but Amazon requires you to send it to six different fulfillment centers, the handling and preparing of that product is called prep. Uh, so the product ends in our warehouse for an average of 1.7 days to prep it, and then it goes right back out the door. Most of the time, my warehouse is near empty, and then all of a sudden it's full, and then two days later it's empty again. And that's kind of the goal, right? To basically keep that warehouse, keep it just moving through the warehouse. I like to see an empty warehouse because that means I don't have any money sitting on my floor. Because <laughs> if it's sitting in the warehouse, it's not uh, not doing anything in your warehouse, right? Not helping me. Yeah, nope. yeah. Amazon has some very strict uh, labeling requirements and the the whole packaging of s sending an inbound FBA order. Um, it's one of those things, right? When you go on FBA and you say, "Hey, I'm configure, I'm setting up an inbound order." You know, here's what's in it. They then come to you and say, "Here's how we're actually gonna, you know, need it shipped. Here's how you have to label it." And they give you um, some very strict instructions to follow. Correct. And you don't have to do that yourselves. There are lots of companies around North America for you to outsource that to. They're called three PLs um, or prep centers. But we can do it. We can do it at a lower cost quite a bit lower cost than they would charge us. And that part of that is because we're in Boise, Idaho, where labor costs and real estate costs are relatively inexpensive. They're below average for the U.S. market as a whole. Um, and so we're able to prep for about 10 cents a piece, whereas prep centers would charge us almost a buck a piece. So our costs would be quite a bit higher. Yep. So yeah, there are three PLs and they, um, the nice part in Boise though, you're in a relatively um, central location to begin with. So you don't have to yeah, sort of. Yeah, relatively. I was talking to someone last week from <laughs> could, doing could this. Be better. I was talking to someone last week in Northern Maine, so it uh, <laughs> it's all relative, right? Yeah, all relative, exactly. Yeah. Um, and bring, and they're bringing stuff in from the West Coast to Northern Maine and then shipping it back out. So, and some of our suppliers, they will ship. We have long-standing relationships. They already know how to prep for Amazon, so some of them will send direct to Amazon for us. So not everything makes it here. Okay. Yeah, because some folks they seem to be a little more savvy with knowing the Amazon requirements and they'll follow them. Um, Cause the worst thing you don't want them to send in a shipment and have it rejected and no, uh, you know, <laughs> that's my problem. Yeah. It goes, in, it goes into some, uh, you know, limbo at Amazon of what is all this product basically. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We've never had that happen. So I can't speak from firsthand experience I, and, and I don't, I'm not personally involved in prep and shipping. So if I called Janine in here, maybe she would say, well, actually there was a time, but I just don't know what it is. How many people do you have working in the warehouse? Um, so we have four full-time employees upstairs and then we have another four people who work in the warehouse that are all part-time. Very cool. Okay. So price come in. You find these suppliers, shipping the products, what's next? So you get the products to FBA. Um, how many products do you currently have listed in Amazon, approximately? A uh, hundred. Okay. Maybe more, I don't know, I haven't looked lately. Yeah. So once you get them there, what do you do from there? Once they're in Amazon? Once they're at FBA, you know, to actually, uh, now to get the listings actually performing, right? So let's say, um, I know you said you were in private label for a shot call, but let's say there's a shot call you're trying to sell. Yeah, so so keep in mind the whole basis of Amazon is to a certain degree, the listings are already performing. That's what caused us to want to source the product to begin with. So 
even if we didn't do anything, they're all going to sell. What we typically will do, though, is we go through a listing optimization process. Um, we go through a pay-per-click management process. Uh, so basically, optimization and advertising. We are looking for ways to increase the conversion rate of the product listing and ultimately increase its sales velocity so as to improve its sales rank. Okay. So you go through and it's – so you're – particularly you're targeting listings and products that are already doing decently well. So you're not going through and saying, let's find, you know, the, out of whatever category, the bottom of the, the worst of the one. You're trying to find something that's actually doing reasonably well and you can get in there and just kind of help move product. Correct. Okay. So then how do you actually compete for the buy box? Let's say if the manufacturer is already, you know, in there and doing okay. So we wouldn't purchase a product unless we knew we were going to be the low price seller typically at MAP. And in the case where, let's say, a manufacturer is, is the sole seller and MAP is $19.99, we're going to be at $19.99. So they're going to get half the sales and we're going to get half the sales. If at some point in the future we can demonstrate reasons for them to give us the entire buyer box, all we tell them to do is raise their price to $24.99 and they won't see the buy box and we'll get it all. Yep. Well, and if let's say the manufacturer wasn't doing that well and they weren't doing um, customer service as well, and like getting back on support, having some sort of shipping issues, you're going to start to see, you're going to start to appear in the buy box more often, right? We are because their seller rating will go down. And we, so even if our prices are the same, we'll get a larger share of the buy box. Plus if we're running pay-per-click ads and they're not, we'll also get a larger share of the buy box. Okay. So you're able to go in there and really start basically dominating the listing at that point. That's the goal. Okay. It doesn't always happen, but that's definitely the goal. Yeah. What sort of, what sort of things stop that from happening? Um, just other others. Like across our entire portfolio, our win rate is generally about 65%. Sometimes it's up as high as 70 um, So the things that stop it is if there are others, like let's say we're into a situation where the manufacturer has four authorized sellers and we're one of them and everyone's at the same price. Well, we're only going to get a quarter of the buy box unless we're running pay-per-click and nobody else is or our seller rating's a little bit better than the other guys, maybe we'll get up to 30%. But in the case of where there's four sellers all at map, we're not gonna get 60%. Okay. It's just not gonna ever happen. Yep. But that's okay, because we made the decision to invest in that product on the assumption that we would only get 25% of the buy box. Got it. So you might not have invested as much product, much you know, inventory in that particular item. It all depends on the sales velocity because if the product is moving 3,000 units a day, 25% of 3,000 units is I need a lot of inventory. Yep. So okay. this goes back to the contract that I talked about is if there, if we're looking at a listing for a product and there are three sellers that are on it and we can't count ourselves as being the fourth, we would only buy it if they're willing to sign a contract with us that says there'll never be a fifth. Okay. So you're getting that contract. So you know there won't be a fifth. You can help front the sell through. So you know this many units per day. There's only going to be four of us, you know, at, at most. Um, so you know you're going to sell this many. You can basically assume you'll sell X many per day, and you know that up front. So you know if you're putting how much are we talking in, like on a on a product, like how much are we talking you would invest, and how quickly would you expect that return on that? Um, so you're it's it's impossible to give you an answer because it's different with every single product. I will tell you that our initial orders are typically between two and three thousand dollars for a test order. That's we one, would anticipate one, one order, one skew. One order, one skew. That we would anticipate that would we'd burn through that in in two weeks or less. Okay. 
that then gives us the data, the hard data. Plus now we have a contract in our hands to go and buy 60 days worth. And so 60 days worth might be, like I say, might be 15 grand, might be 20 grand. It just depends. So, cause then you start feeling more comfortable of knowing, okay, we did a test. We did our two week test. We know we spent, let's say 2000. We got that 2000 back in two weeks. Now we can rent this up and start going from there. Yep. Okay. Do you always try to stay at the 60 day mark and you try to go more aggressive as you go? No, we don't. We, you know, one of the key things that you're looking for in any business that has inventory is inventory turns. The faster you can turn your inventory, the greater your return on investment will be in a calendar year. The only reason we, like we used to do 30 days worth of inventory, but as the number of products in our portfolio increased, the work involved in reorders got to be too much. So then there's only two ways to solve that. One, I can hire another person, which adds to my overhead, or I can make larger orders and make them less often. And that was the more economical solution. So right now, 60 days is our sweet spot of, you know, not because if you're doing 38 orders, essentially once one order gets FBA, you need to be starting your next order at that point. Because by the time, you know, by the time the manufacturer, you know, you make the order, they ship it to you, you ship it to FBA. FBA has a whole like, um, waiting list yes of you know getting it in so what's that like a popular bar there's a lineup (laughs) at the door yeah it really and it takes a while right what's that what does it actually take let's say to get it from manufacturer x to boise to fba and then actually selling like what does that time frame look like uh again i'm not personally involved in that anymore but i would guess it's anywhere from two to three weeks okay so now actually that that's a good point what part are you personally involved in because i know you've done a lot with actually delegation and have a lot of folks kind of helping with this. So yeah, I'm not personally involved in any day-to-day operations (laughs) anymore at all. Okay. Because I have more than one business. So I sit down here and I run my other businesses. Now we do have a morning huddle most mornings and I participate in that. So I'm up there for about 10 minutes each day. And really all I'm doing is listening and asking questions. Okay. And then day-to-day you're working on the other business at this point or what kind of what is your role then at that point other than nothing? Okay. Wow. Absolutely. nothing. I have no active role. I don't even take a, because I have no active role. I'm also not on payroll for that company either. Interesting. Okay. Huh? I like that. So how did you do, how did you do that? Magic. No. Yeah. <laughs> so what is your magic so, to make that? So, so I have an acronym that I created actually just in the last week. It's called C Todd C T O D D. C-T-O-D-D. Let's write that down. All right. Uh, I, as far as I know, nobody else has used this acronym before, so I'm, I'm hereby take, staking claim, taking ownership. So the C, Todd. The C, so, and this is for any CEO. I believe that this is the role of a CEO, is to create, as in come up with the idea, test, make sure it works, optimize, document, and delegate. I'm really, really good at documenting and delegating. Create, so documenting test, is sta- optimize, document, delegate. Correct. Okay, got it. So documenting is creating standard operating procedures, basically checklists for everything that we do. And we we have, gosh, I don't know, just shy of a hundred SOPs. I don't know, maybe it's like eighty in our in our business right now. And then we hire staff to use those standard operating procedures to do the thing. The, or the things uh, that they have to do on a day to day basis, and having those 
procedures in place ensures that all the things that need to be done get done exactly the same way every single time which means that I'm not so dependent upon being able to hire geniuses, even though my staff is very talented. But even me, if I don't do something regularly, I'll, I'll forget how to do it. And I might do it differently the next time. Like when you go, if you were working at McDonald's and you're the burger, burger flipper, your boss doesn't say flip the burger when you think it's ready. He says flip the burger when the light comes on because yep. it's the exact same amount of time every single time. When you buy a McDonald's franchise or any other franchise, they give you a whole book of standard operating procedures. So in my business, I read – in my prior business, I did the same thing. I read the E-Myth uh, by uh, Michael Gerber at the very beginning of that business and became an evangelist for having a standard operating procedures. It's one of the reasons why I was able to sell that business for $1.2 million was because it ran without me. And so any business that I run, I don't actually want to do anything on a day-to-day basis on an ongoing basis. It's just not interesting to me. I'm an entrepreneur. I have ADD. I like starting new things. So in order to put myself in a position to be able to do that, I need to create, test, optimize, document, and delegate. Hmm. So now I get it on kind of the, you know, there's some things in the business, obviously, that are a bit simpler. But then there's some other things that seem a lot more complicated and kind of this like high level, like um, finding a new manufacturer. And that process felt a little, that feels like something a lot of entrepreneurs would keep close to them. Um, oh, no, that was the first thing I delegated. Really? Okay. So that's why we were able to get to a hundred grand a month within five months. Okay. So I, I turned all of that into a system that was run by virtual assistants in the Philippines for three bucks an hour. Really? So how did you do that? Because that one right there feels like something that a lot of people would have a very hard time with. So it breaks down into two parts. First of all, it's generating the lead. What is a company that we would want to go after? That is strictly a math equation. You have all this data on Amazon. You suck it all out of Amazon and put it into spreadsheets, and it boils down to very simple math. Does the product generate enough potential profit per month for us to want to carry it? Once that happens, then there's the whole process of taking all of those leads that you generate, and there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them every week, and figuring out, well, who do we need to reach out to and sending an email and all that. VAs do all of that stuff. We use some software to to automate portions of it. Um, And then, and only then, a conversation may or may not occur. That is not handled by a VA. In the first five months in the business, I was the guy handling all of those conversations. And most of them turned out where we didn't place an order, we didn't get an account approved, but enough of them turned out positively that we grew as fast as we did. And the very first person I hired, uh, actually was it the first or the second? Second. So the first person we hired was a special projects person because as we our revenue scaled, there just became all this stuff that needed to be done. And if I was going to be doing that stuff, then I wasn't going to be sourcing, which would slow down our growth rate. And I didn't want that to happen. So, but if, uh, by maybe month six or so, uh, I hired a full-time guy uh, who'd had no sourcing experience whatsoever, not in the wholesale model. He had sourced products from China before, which is totally different than this. And it took him probably three or four months to kind of really come up to speed. I think it took him a couple of months to even land his first account. But he was operating because efficiently, 
from the get-go. He just did, there were some phone skills that he needed to develop. But because we had all the standard operating procedures in place, between him and Laura, I was now completely out of sourcing. I didn't have to do anything. I, I oversaw and I did some joint calls and did some training, you know, in the be- beginning to supplement the standard operating procedures. But it got to the point where, you know, I just didn't need to be involved anymore. So even that negotiation with the, with the manufacturer, you're able to kind of um, systematize. Yep. Okay. I, I don't do it. He does it. I don't wow. do it. He okay. completely replaced me because of the SOPs. Obviously, the guy has some skills. I mean, he's, you, know, you can't just take anybody and plug them into a role. You still have to have the right seats on the right bums on the bus. Yep. Because it's the right role for people to begin with, right? You need, obviously, someone that's relatively extroverted um, to do that sort of thing. Well, the funny thing with this guy is he's not. Oh. He's not the <laughs> well, maybe he don't. quietest dude ever. Yep. Um, but he, through the training and the procedures, Abe was able to develop the talking points necessary to be able to convince a manufacturer to go with us. And, I mean, some of our largest accounts, he, he won them, not me. Okay, so then on a day-to-day, they're able to start generating more accounts, talking to more suppliers, and then and then it just starts the machine just starts working from there. It does. Wow, this is a uh, this is Emith right here in the, <laughs> in the yeah. works, actually happening in yeah. real life. Wow, so that's allowed you to then you then have a second business you started to kind of spin off from. You now have the time to basically sit downstairs, the warehouse is upstairs, and let this business run its own? Yeah. So I have a couple other businesses. Uh, so I have my blog and podcast, which I don't sell any training courses. I do the podcast simply because I, I, I'm, it allows me to network with other people in the industry. It allows me to, to learn new things. And, um, one of those relationships created a whole new business. Um, so there's a guy who, um, sells a training course and after I interviewed him, he gave me access to his training course. So technically, we were students. And when we had all the success that we had, um, he was planning a conference for his existing student base. And he said, would you be interested in coming and talking at the conference to explain how you use standard operating procedures, or SOPs for short, to scale your business up so quickly? And I said, yeah, sure, I'll do that. And so when I did my talk... Uh, at the beginning of it, I said, hey, everybody, you know, like take good notes because I don't have anything for sale. I'm just going to explain to you this thing that I built. And it was moderately technical. And, you know, you have to be a pretty bright cookie to like sit there, take notes for an hour and be able to build everything that I built because it took me more than an hour to build it, obviously. And um, at the conclusion of my speech, quite a large portion of the audience kind of ran up to the stage and they all were basically saying the same or they were going to the microphones. And the the question over and over was, would you sell us a copy of your standard operating procedures? And I hadn't considered doing that, but I was like, well, I guess we could. And so we did that as a test and it went exceedingly well. And in the first six months, we sold almost a million dollars worth of these standard operating procedures. It's now called WEBS, stands for Wholesale E-Commerce Business Systems. So that's a whole other business. And and, uh, we've now created a software application to support the WEBS product so that we can do even more with it. So that's business number two. 
you could call my blog business number three, but um, it, I mean, it does make money on its own. So I guess that's business number three. And then business number four, uh, I'm starting a non-Amazon e-commerce business uh, in the motorsports niche called the National Motorsports Owners Association. And that's just because I like to have diversified streams of income. What happens if our Amazon account got suspended, which it never has, and we've never come close. But the, the fewer things that you control in your business, the more risk that you have. And so I like to try and be able to eliminate as much risk from my business as I can. And so that's why I'm starting a non-Amazon business. And I think that it will uh, hopefully go on to eclipse the revenue and the profits of our Amazon business. So the non-Amazon business, that's going to be running your own site, your own domain, like a Magento, Shopify, BigCommerce, that sort of thing. And then you're going to promote that as its own standalone yep. store, right? Yep. Okay. And then the SOPs, you're selling those as just a, a one-time download. So folks, other retailers come to you. Are these folks that have Amazon businesses or want to have Amazon businesses? Yeah, or? yeah. they're specifically for people in the Amazon wholesale space who want to be in that space or are in that space. Okay. And, you know, 400 and some people have bought these things so far. And I've seen some pretty awesome transformational results because not everybody's mind works like mine does. Um, I have a special skill for developing SOPs in, in such a way that it makes delegating really, really easy. And so there was a lot of writing that I did and a lot of documentation. And it's intimidating for someone to start with just like a blank sheet of paper and think, okay, write 69 SOPs for every area of your business. Like that would take a long, long time. Uh, it took us well over a year and we're still adding more and adjusting the ones we have and improving them. I mean, it's an, a, a never ending process. So it makes sense for most people to just buy that as opposed to create it. Um, and I think maybe I forgot part of your question, but to the best of no. my recollection, that was the answer. <laughs> how, how much do you sell them for out of curiosity? 2,500 bucks. Okay, so 2,500 and somebody who, let's say they haven't, let's just say you have an Amazon business and it's doing okay, but you wanna, you hear this and you wanna kinda start delegating some of the work or just knowing some parts you can do to grow the business. 2500 they get a PD, bunch of PDFs and they're able to... No, learn. it's not a bunch of PDFs. Okay. Is it, it? <laughs> it lives... They, they also have to pay the, the $15 per user. At, as, at the time of this recording, it okay. is $15 <laughs> per user per month. They have to pay that for access to the software tool. Okay. There's no PDFs. Everything lives in the software. And we're, we'll, our Zapier integration is just about done. So the, the idea here... because you know, you could write SOPs in a Google Doc, but then they don't do anything. Like you can look at them and they can look at you, but they don't do anything. You can't, whereas, you know, you need the ability to delegate the entire checklist or maybe a portion of the checklist to a person or persons on your team. You need to be able to assign a due date. You need to get email alerts if the due date is missed. If someone comments on it, you need to get email alerts or through Zapier, maybe you, when you put a check in this checkbox in the pro in the in the in the checklist in the workflow, maybe that triggers an action in, in your HubSpot CRM application and changes a field. All of these things to increase efficiency, save time, and reduce errors. That's why we're we've moved it into our own software application so that because even zaps are kind of complicated for most people. And so we're trying to make it so they don't have to make zaps. We're trying to make it so that we hard code integrations that we use ourselves between the various applications that we use in our business 
all to increase efficiency, reduce errors, and save time. Okay, so when you said SOP, I'm picturing a, like a like you come in and hand like a book and you put it down on the desk yeah. and then you leave. There's no then, book. Okay, so there's no, no book. There's it's no actually book. like a living it's a software thing. application. So, okay, so this is an application that actually like like a workflow automation application and not just a static Correct. manual of here it is. Correct. Go have a you know. You, you log into it and click okay. stuff and type stuff and do stuff. Ah, okay. See so when you yeah, I was picturing something very. I was picturing literally a manual that goes on a shelf. So this is uh, uh, So then you're saying you click things and that actually like takes you some action and then okay checkbox and that'll fire off something over here that labels something is done so someone else can pick it up. Correct. Got it. Okay. Very cool. So it allows for collaboration on any given workflow. You can collaborate, you can talk to each other, you can have assigned assigned tasks, you can make comments, it all triggers emails and all sorts of good things happen. These are, we just scratch our own itch with this is all stuff that we needed to use to make our business more profitable. And so that's what I've built. Did this start in like a, did this, was the evolution, did it begin like as a, you know, a text document and then it came to this? Yeah, it began as a Google doc. Okay. Uh, until I realized that that wasn't going to uh, meet all the requirements that we had. And then I found somebody else's software application to put it in. And and that worked well for us. But when we turned it into a product for use by others, we hit some limitations that caused some support issues. And so then I realized that, well, if I was to make my own software application, I would be able to eliminate some of these bottlenecks that are causing customers issues and we could make it even more capable. And so that's why we decided to do it. Okay. And the nice part too is by being a, like a living type thing, it, um, you're able to update it. So I was, I was in an application. It was actually a, a SaaS application the other day and I was needed something. So I'm going through the help section and I find the exact article. I'm like, Oh, this is exactly what I need. I'm going through the steps and I'm, trying to figure out, I'm like, I can't follow these steps. And I'm looking at the screenshots and I realized, oh, this is from like a previous version and they haven't updated this. So now it's like this like frozen old version. It's exactly what I want. I just, it's not helping me. So then I actually have to email the support and say, oh yeah, that's from, you know, 2016. We've updated that since. And like, oh, okay. So, <laughs> so this is something you're able to then update and, you know, when Amazon changes, whatever, you're able to evolve with that. Yep. Very cool. Okay, so what is is that on a separate site? Oh, what's that site called? Uh, it's not live as of this recording. Uh, it will live at flowster.app. Flowster.app. Okay, very cool. And uh, I mean, if you go there now, there is there is a home page, but you can't buy anything. You can't sign up yet. We're we're in the middle. It probably won't be available to the public until either late August or early September. Okay, so soon this is happening. Yeah, we're going through internal testing, then we're going through beta testing with our existing customers who bought the product on the other platform, and we're just we want to make sure that by the time it's available, that it's working flawlessly. Are you still selling the product on the other on the old platform? Nope. Oh wow. Okay, so you've you're cutting and taking all new pre-orders on the on the new one. Yep. Very cool. Has this kind of helped you, you feel, kind of grow the original business or is it, you know, is the original business its own thing and it just goes without you and you're... The, the, the Amazon business is a standalone business. Um, the software company will be a standalone business. My next e-commerce brand will be a standalone business. We create a new legal entity every time we create a new business so they don't have anything to do with each other. They have a separate set of books, the whole works. 
Very cool. When you say we, are you a co-founder or what's the... Uh, in the software company, I'm the founder and I have a co-founder uh, because I don't know how to make software. Okay. So you went out and so you had the SOPs, you're already doing this, had yep. customers, had people interested. And then you said, hey, you know, I'm already doing this, but I want to make it better. I have customers, I have interest in this. But, you know, instead of going out and hiring a, a dev shop for eight months, you actually found a co-founder to say, let's build this together and use my existing customers to uh, jumpstart this product, the new product. Correct. Correct. Fortunately for me, one of my very good friends is a software guy. He'd already sold his software company. Uh, he, I was his roommate when he started it. So I watched him go through the whole process. I watched him interact with the co-founder he had in that software company. When things started to get rough, I got to see how he responded. So I know a lot about this individual. We've been friends for a decade. And I called him up and I said, hey, this is what I want to build. Are you interested? And he was like, hell yeah. Hmm. That's and cool too because having that interest already, I feel like a lot of um, you hear this all the time. You know, non-software folks looking for a technical co-founder, but they have an idea and they need it built, and then we'll go off and sell it. But this sounds the opposite. Like you basically already sold it, but now you just need someone to actually make the the product. Yeah, you know, something you yeah, can. I mean, I sold almost a million dollars of it, and I'm expecting to sell many millions more. Um, so it was a no-brainer of a decision to invest the money to create the software platform. Yeah, that's probably a, uh, a much uh, not not as tough of a sell to finding a co-founder and saying, "I've already sold a million dollars. Want to help me yeah. sell more?" And yeah, yeah, versus yeah. saying, "I have an idea. We maybe we'll sell a million dollars." But Correct. you you knew you tested it, um, and it sounds like that's kind of a theme what you do, right? You you kind of you test and you know ahead of time. We sold a million. CTODD. Yeah, okay. I like the CTODD. We need a, uh, needs to roll off the tongue a little easier, but I, I like where you're going with that. C, C Todd. C -Todd. It's the best I've been able to come up with. It's on my whiteboard. It's not eloquent by any stretch. Maybe I'll be able to come up with a better version. I only came up with it the other day in another conversation with somebody. Very cool. Okay, I like that. So now, it, let's say, last thing, if somebody is sitting out there today, maybe they have an Amazon business or they want to start it, they were doing, I don't, maybe it was private label, maybe it was um, retail arbitrage, something else, but they want to get into wholesaling. What would you kind of recommend people as first steps do or, or don't do? The most important thing to do, I mean, gosh, that's such a loaded question. Yeah, but I, it all, it all, I, I give you a lot started, of, I give you a lot of room there to go a lot yeah, of places. I mean, how, how long do you want me to talk for? <laughs> but it, it all starts with product sourcing. In order to be successful in wholesale, you need wholesale accounts. To get wholesale accounts, you can send emails, make phone calls, go to trade shows. Um, that's probably it. So pick one, pick two, pick three, but you need to do a lot of it. Whatever your particular method is, like we send hundreds and hundreds of emails every single week. And then the guy, my Jared on my team who sources He's on the phone all the time because people were sending the emails to or they're sending price lists and then we start negotiations and we talk about the contract. So there's lots of communication that happens. Um, and then we haven't been using trade shows a lot, but I literally just did a pre-interview for my own podcast with a guy who's having some success with trade shows. And so I'm probably um, going to revisit I'm probably going to send myself to another trade show in the relatively near future um, to test 
a couple of new uh, new strategies to see if that would work for us as well. I like that. I'm taking notes here. It, um, yeah, I feel like a lot of people they think once they once they find a supplier, they find they find somebody, they find a product that will be it. Now they're just going to go and it'll all be yeah. It'll no, all just, you need to be, you yeah. need to be finding new accounts all the time because there's this thing called account attrition. You yep. won't keep them all forever. Um, if people want a more detailed explanation of my product sourcing strategy, if they just go to breadideas.co slash 213, that is a... Uh, All right, we'll link to that. That is probably the most popular podcast episode I've ever produced where I explain the strategy in quite a lot of detail. Just know in advance that because I'm an, a semi, I'm an automations nerd, it's a bit technical at spots. I mean, conceptually, it's easy. But to go and try and build it for the average bear, while not impossible, because I built it and I don't write code, um, it, it's a little bit complicated. Yep, that whole the automation on actually finding suppliers—you have yeah. it's that complicated. Yep. A little bit. Yeah, not like ridiculously so, but it is the area where people struggle the most, and it's the biggest problem that my web's product solves. And it's the biggest reason why people buy the web's product is yep. to be able to source more. Because because if you don't source anything, you don't have any revenue. Nothing else really matters at that point in time if you don't have any revenue. And if you can't source the right products, because the other thing you see a lot of folks doing is they go to some supplier that everyone goes to, or they they go online and search um, directories of wholesale suppliers, and just <laughs> you know you see that all the time. That's and, not going to work. Yeah, and. They always say, no, 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 that's not what you, I want to do. Um, and they're like, yeah, but I need a supplier. And they're like, but that's that's where the work is. And finding those yeah. relate, finding oh, yeah. suppliers, the building the relationship, that's the work. It's the hardest part of our business, by far. By far the hardest part of our business. Everything else after that is a piece of cake. Yep. So I like that. If you do that part right, then it's a piece of cake. <laughs> yep. All right. I like it. I think that's a good place to leave it right there. Okay. So if folks want to kind of find more about you, um, what are some other good Bright Ideas podcasts? What else? Yeah, I guess I should have worn my T-shirt. It says breadideas.co. That, that is the single best place to go to learn more about me. Awesome. We'll definitely link to that in the show notes. So thank you very much for coming on today. Yeah, no problem. It was a pleasure to be here.